Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious authorities and be killed and after three days rise again. In today's gospel lesson, Peter, and by implication, the church, learns something. To live one's life as a Jesus follower, that is to say, to live one's life with God's priorities at your center and as your center, means to willingly enter into things like suffering, rejection by others, death, and resurrection. That is not an easy message to hear or absorb. It was not an easy message for Peter to hear or absorb. It's not an easy message for me to hear or absorb. And I suspect it's not an easy message for most Christians or most churches to hear or absorb. So it's important to put today's gospel in context, to get a little bit of a running start into it. Today's gospel is from the eighth chapter of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. But today's passage is, is just a photograph. It is one scene, one frame taken from the motion picture of the Gospel of Mark. And if we back up just a little in the eighth chapter of Mark, here's the scene. Some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. People bring Jesus a blind man and beg Jesus to touch him. Jesus takes him by the hand, leads him away from the crowds, spits on his eyes, lays hands on him, and says, do you see anything? Now, normally, we expect when Jesus takes someone aside and lays his healing hands on them, that whoosh, a miracle occurs and sight would be recovered in full. The ears unstop, the tongue loosened, the lame walk. But in this story, in the eighth chapter of Mark, there's a subtle difference. It's a two-step or gradual healing. Jesus takes the man away from the crowds, spits on his eyes, touches him, and says, do you see anything? The man says, essentially, um, I see men, but they look like trees walking. I don't mean to complain, but could you try that again? More than one adjustment is necessary. The man is only partially healed. He can only barely distinguish between people and trees. His vision is blurry. So again, Jesus lays his hand on the man's eyes. He looks intently at him. And this time, the healing's complete. The man comes to see clearly. His eyesight's completely restored. And he sees everything distinctly. Immediately following this gradual healing of the blind man, Jesus starts 
walking to other villages, and along the way he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they reply that people are saying that some of you say that you're John the Baptist, other people say that you're Elijah, still others out there are saying that you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Jesus says. Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, keep in mind, when Peter says that, he's saying quite a lot. He's not just saying, you're the anointed one. He's saying, you're the Messiah, the Savior. Not just my Savior, but the Savior, the Deliverer. You're the one we've been waiting for. For centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting and hoping and praying for Messiah. And notions of what Messiah would look like differed. There was one unifying hope. And that would be that this anointed one would deliver them from political and what we would call socioeconomic oppression. They had been suffering under brutal foreign leaders for much of their lives. Exiled, persecuted, misunderstood, oppressed. They had suffered. They had been rejected. They had been killed. But one day, one day, this suffering, this rejection, this being killed would end. One day, God would send a deliverer, a savior, the anointed one. That was their expectation. That was their hope. And this is where today's passage picks up. Immediately after Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the one, Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the religious authorities and that he will be killed and after three days rise again. That is not an easy message to hear or absorb. And when Peter And again, remember that Peter customarily represents not just the other disciples, but Peter represents the church. When Peter hears Jesus talk about suffering and betrayal and death as an integral part of his ministry, he takes issue with it. Peter rebukes, he reprimands, he scolds Jesus for talking that way. In response, Jesus rebukes Peter right back. Jesus gives Peter, and by implication, all his disciples and the church today, the strongest criticism given anywhere in the Bible. Get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set not on divine things, but on human things. Father Gregory Boyle, S.J., writing about his ministry with inner-city gangs in Los Angeles in his wonderful and powerful book, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. He writes this, The strategy and stance of Jesus was consistent in that it was always out of step with the world. Jesus defied all the categories upon which the world insisted. Good, evil, success, failure, pure, impure. Surely, Boyle writes, 
He was an equal opportunity pisser-offer in this regard. The right wing would stare at him and question where he chose to stand, Boyle writes. They hated that he aligned himself with the unclean, those outside, those folks you should neither touch or be near. He hobnobbed with the leper, shared table fellowship with the sinner, and rendered himself ritually impure in the process. They, the right, found it offensive that to boot, Jesus had no regard for their wedge issues, their constitutional amendments, or their culture wars. The left was equally annoyed. They wanted to see the 10-point plan, the revolution in high gear, the toppling of sinful social structures. They were impatient with his brand of solidarity. They wanted to see him taking the right stand on issues, not just standing in the right place. But Jesus, Boyle continues, stood with the outcast. The left screamed, don't just stand there, do something. And the right said, don't stand with those folks at all. Both sides, seeing Jesus out of step with the world, came to their own reasons for wanting him dead. I suppose Jesus could have chosen a strategy that worked better, that didn't end in the cross, but he couldn't find a strategy more soaked with fidelity than the one he embraced. You see, in context, in context, Jesus is telling his followers, then and now, that to live with God and God's priorities at your center inherently involves things like suffering, rejection by others, death and resurrection. It's not an easy message to hear or absorb. Like Peter, we have expectations about who God is, what God's priorities are, and what God will do for us once we make God the center of our lives. God will deliver us. God will come through for us. God will take away, relieve us and others from suffering or oppression and give us joy. And in fact, God will do all those things. But God's ways are not our ways, nor God's thoughts our thoughts. God will and God does, in fact, deliver and come through and take away and relieve us and others from suffering and oppression. And God will and God does give us joy but almost certainly not in the way that you or I imagine or plan or want. To put that another way, to quote Anne Lamott, quoting her friend, the Jesuit priest Tom Weston, you can safely assume that you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. The root of Christianity, the nucleus, the central, most important driving center, the base and the basis for Christianity and Christians' activities is not any policy, program, purpose, principle, or political focal point, however noble they may be. 
Rather, the root of Christianity, the nucleus, the central most important driving center, the base and the basis for Christianity and Christians' activities is a person, Jesus. Jesus teaches Peter, and by extension us, the church, that the way to true deliverance, true relief, true joy, is to stop wasting so much of our energy running away from the suffering inherent in life, but rather to willingly enter into it, to go down into it, and to there discover a basic holiness and peace that surpasses our understanding. Jesus wants us to stop wasting so much of our energy trying to avoid pain, our own and the pain of those closest to us, but rather to enter into it and there to discover a mysterious and deeper joy. Jesus wants us to stop wasting so much of our energy fearing death and trying to avoid death. Not just literal death, but our fear of the death of the past, the death of things we once knew, the death of the way things once were, but rather to accept death and deaths as an inevitable and necessary part of life, new life, resurrection life. As Eugene Peterson paraphrases the rest of this passage, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Sacrifice is the way, self-sacrifice, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do you to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? It's not an easy message to hear or to absorb. It's, It's not something that we get all at once. In fact, that is a way of life that most of us are completely blind to. But if we go to God about it, God will take us aside, away from the crowd. God will lay hands on us and gradually open our eyes. And our vision of this Jesus-led reign of God life will be blurry at first. But if we tell Jesus about it, he'll touch us again and as often as necessary, until we see clearly and distinctly that the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, is the way to resurrection, new, joyful, and eternal life. Thanks be to God.